certainly when we look at the life histories, so the, the work I did on a picture, the life histories of people who've perpetrated violence within relationships, there are many more similarities than differences. I found that um, the, the kind of themes that the participants I um who very kindly took part in my research, the kind of themes that were present for both women and men were about the chaos and the the trauma experiences of their early lives and their adolescence. Um, very unstable, chaotic, really unsteady lives that, that these women and men faced and were exposed to with high levels of abuse, um, physical, sexual, um, you name it, they'd they'd gone through it. And and there was very little that really separated out the women and men. But where those differences lie, they're potentially really important, actually. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Today you're going to hear from Jenny Mackay, who's Principal Lecturer at Nottingham Trent University, teaching mostly in areas related to forensic psychology and forensic mental health. She completed her PhD on the treatment needs of women who perpetrate intimate partner violence and how these needs compare to men's, using qualitative methods to gather unique and rich life history data about this sensitive topic. Jenny has a particular research interest in what works in domestic abuse perpetrator programmes, and she's keen to influence current practice to reflect the need to recognise the complex and often traumatic histories of those who perpetrate violence within relationships. Before her academic career, Jenny predominantly worked as a practitioner in a range of forensic and health settings with vulnerable and hard-to-reach individuals. So this has included working in prisons, carrying out psychological interventions, offending behaviour group work and substance misuse work. She's also worked in a secure children's home with vulnerable secluded children aged 10 to 17 and adults with learning disabilities and behaviours that challenge in both in inpatient units and community settings. And Jenny's also conducted research with young people who are not in education, employment or training and has worked for the probation service. More recently, Jenny has been appointed as a trustee for Leicestershire YMCA. So a really rich um, range of experience there, Jenny. Really looking forward to hear, hear about how that shaped who you are as a researcher. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Hi Jenny, really nice to meet uh, with you and as uh, Naomi was just saying, you've packed an awful lot into your life uh, there, <laughs> so it's going to be a really interesting conversation. Could we begin by you perhaps telling us a bit about your career path, as, as we understand you've worked with women in both prison and in hospital settings? Yeah, um, yeah, it's been a yeah, like you say, I've packed in quite a lot, and I've uh, <laughs> moved around quite a lot. But there's, there's the when I look back, there's always been a kind of a thread to it in terms of working with maybe perhaps what we'd see as more vulnerable people. So um, I did my after my undergraduate degree in psychology, I I um, had a real interest in wanting to work with people who have offended. And I knew that was the route I wanted to go down. So I, I went and worked in the probation service in Leicestershire um, and spent a bit of time there and then uh, chose to move over into the prison service. So um continued kind of delivering offending behaviour work with, with people in prison in the Young Offender Institute, it was then, um, and did my master's in forensic psychology at that point and, and thought I wanted to become a forensic psychologist. Um, but, but as it turns out, I never actually did do that. I didn't do that full training. Um, and although I was uh, probably a bit disappointed at the time that I sort of felt that was a bit unreachable, actually looking back, it's enabled me to do all those different things um so it was a bit of a, a gift horse I think kind of not taking up that training and then yeah I moved then out of the prison service went to do something completely different working in research in a third sector organization with um trying to work out the barriers to education for young people young adults 
who maybe had not got on so well in school and, and were in maybe more alternative education. I then moved to Wales and did some uh, same with the same organisation and did some policy work. So trying to influence the Welsh Assembly Government to think about adult learning and barriers to adult learning. Um, and then moved back into the NHS. So moved into a, a role that was, again, kind of focused with vulnerable people. So with, with adults with learning disabilities who were presenting challenging behaviours. Um, and work with clinical psychologists. So that gave me quite an insight at that point into the world of clinical psychology, how to do formulation, how to do psychological formulation, um, how to work in multi-agency teams, that kind of work, and work with both um, women and men across that team. Um, And then at that point, I moved back to my hometown of Leicester and went to work in a secure children's home. So then worked with young women um, in a six bed unit. Um, I probably hasten to say perhaps some of the the most vulnerable young women um, in the country, probably um, incredibly difficult lives that they had faced, incredibly difficult work. and so difficult, in fact, that I found that quite tough to stick at. And <laughs> it was it was a very demanding environment. So then moved from there back into the prison service, um, working employed by the NHS, so working in a contracted service delivering substance misuse work. And then by a kind of chance conversation, ended up in academia. So then um, managed, very, very lucky to um, get on a PhD programme um and um the the i guess the stars aligned the topic was um was set out already it was about looking at women who perpetrated domestic violence or intimate partner violence as um, we tend to refer to it as and so that's where my i guess academic career then then started so um and undertook those uh, as as Naomi said in the, the bio there that kind of rich qualitative work with women and men in prison who had been convicted of intimate partner violence related offences um, and and that then once I'd done the, the four-year PhD program then um, again lucky enough to secure a role working at Nottingham Trent University and that's kind of brings us up to today <laughs> um, and I've sort of tried to follow through that that thread of research and, and stayed um, as active as I can do in the in a busy university environment to try and, and keep up that research, yeah. So yeah, po- potted history, but yeah. Well, one can see how you've followed particular themes of working with some of the most disadvantaged people in the uh, the country throughout your career. I didn't mm. quite I didn't quite understand why you made that switch into academia you slightly skated over that I think (laughs) well it was a um it it was never on the plan I don't think it was um I'd sort of in a in a funny position in my career where it it, um you know the the 2008 recession had happened or the the crash then had happened I'm not quite sure whether we made it into a recession then or not but there was um it was much harder to um to to secure good lengthy jobs doing good work with people you know when I wasn't a a professionally qualified I guess I wasn't a nurse I wasn't a psychologist um you know I'd had quite a bit of good experience but it was really difficult to find those kind of roles and that and and it really put me at a bit of a crossroads of sort of thinking I I need to um I need to make a choice here and, and and develop a career somewhere solid I guess and 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 it and and I wasn't sure what that looked like um but I had a conversation with a friend you know had the the kids running around and and she said oh I know um Erica Bowen at Coventry University and she's got some PhD studentships and one of them I'm sure is about prisons maybe you'd be interested and I sort of nodded along and said yeah okay yeah you know put me in touch kind of thing and thought that absolutely no chance would I be able, a, a, able and competent enough to complete a PhD, let alone sort of didn't really see this going anywhere. And, um, but, but that, that friend did put us in touch and I had a conversation with Erica, went and met her for a, a coffee. And I mean, Erica's turned out to be one of the most 
influential women people that I've worked with and um and and it, it stemmed from there it was just kind of um it felt like it felt achievable it felt attainable I thought I could do it I thought I could bring a lot to it and and bring that experience to it and even that was kind of focused on research which I thought well I don't know if that's particularly for me actually the fact that it was so applied and um and I was still able to feel a little bit like a practitioner I was able to go I knew I'd be able to go into prisons and um and be back in that environment and um you know really get to understand people that actually you probably don't get to do so well sometimes as a practitioner when you're limited by resources um and you know locations etc so um it, it it turned out to be the best thing I did do and the, the best thing I did sign up to and 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 then whilst doing the PhD I had opportunities to teach um to work on other little projects on the side and um it just made me realize that again it felt like something I could do I can do I I'm, I can do this I like this I like teaching people I like sharing my knowledge and experience and, and maybe that's something that I could do at the end of the PhD and then that's what I I chose to do then so um yeah yeah it's been it's been good <laughs> I think it's interesting to hear you talk about your variety of experiences and then ending up without having a professional qualification because there was a as you spoke about that I suppose it sounded almost like that was a disadvantage but my guess is I think we'll come back to this later on in the interview that actually there's I think too often we end up kind of like having to choose our career pathway very early on and then people stick rigidly on that career pathway and I think there's a lot to be said from getting learning from different areas and then pulling it all together and I think that brings a different richness but I, I think we can probably come back to that later. Yes, yeah, would wholeheartedly agree. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, th- thanks very much, Jenny. I'm glad we went back over that because I think you gave a really brilliant little description of how you felt enabled to make a leap into a different field that perhaps you hadn't felt very confident to do otherwise. Mm. Yes, so, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, anyway, how did the work? differ between prisons and NHS settings? Were there any particular cultural differences between the two systems? Yeah, so it's really interesting reflecting on that and thinking about that. And it's and it's actually, so those cultures, those organisational cultures is something I actually teach with some of my um, master's students now. So I have kind of thought about that a lot looking back on it. Um, and ultimately that you know the the prison service and the nhs are are big machines you know they're (laughs) big public sector machines and so there's quite a lot of similarities in terms of things like you know hierarchy hierarchy of positions um people's individual desire to work in a multi-agency joined up way but that being sometimes hampered by the demands from from that hierarchy the demands from uh other elements of the role that you have um but i guess you know the, the i suppose the most obvious difference is around the the aims of those organizations you know the, the prison is is there to to keep the public safe uh to restrict people's freedoms to offer a sense of rehabilitation sure but uh, you know risk is predominantly the um I guess the, the the driving force, I think, in in the prison service, and you know, qu- quite rightly so, in terms of when you think about um, what kind of behaviours people have unfortunately been involved in. Whereas the NHS, it's much more that medical model, the the, the health model. Um, maybe maybe there's a little bit more of trying to understand why people. Um, why why people present as they do and one of the again another large difference then was about how you can adapt the environment when within the NHS it was very much about how do you adapt the environment in order for that individual to grow and, and flourish whereas within the prison service I'd say it's much more focused on the individual what needs to change about the individual um how 
whether that's you know a, a psychological intervention or a an education intervention or a, a healthcare intervention it's much more individual focused on, on how they need to change as opposed to um like i say that that environment the 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 kind of primary prevention work that's done in in healthcare settings um and i and i've 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 tried that kind of coming from the nhs back into secure type settings I've tried along the years to raise this and to say, maybe we could think about this, you know, this primary prevention work, what needs to change around this person. And it's quite a, it's such a huge culture shift that actually I think we're quite far away from that. Um, um, You know, like I say, not, not, you know, every single prison or secure setting. I'm sure, you know, we we talked briefly before, David, about therapeutic communities. There's probably an element of, of considering that. But the prison service more generally, it's very much about how do you alter the individual? How do you change that person? And I think that's probably the biggest difference in terms of ways of working w- with people there. Thank you. I mean, I always thought that uh, within prisons, the primary focus was on discipline um, and uh, safety um, security yes and in the health service the primary or the dominating factor was the medical model and the task for everybody else was how do you work within those systems um, in a way that's uh, creative and helps uh, the individual grow and uh, develop because if you mm. if you poked either of those systems security or the medical model too much then you were bound to produce some sort of reaction but yes yeah changed. yeah sorry Naomi were you going to say something yeah well, I suppose it reminds me a little bit of that conversation people have don't they about risk versus versus nourishment but that actually it's not in our clients interests to be reoffending anyway so actually in the spirit of well-being is you know supportive to them to not be not you know I, I really think that people are often feel very out of control when they're offending they they know it's associated with not being in a good place psychologically so I don't think there's necessarily a, a clash of I think sometimes clinicians are are encouraged to think that maybe um, they can't possibly um, think about risk as well as think about what's in the best interest of their mm. from a well-being point of view. But I, I actually think the two things are totally intertwined um, because the person doesn't want to cause m- more havoc, um, you know, more damage to somebody else's life any more than they want to do that to their own quite often. Yeah, and that that's it's really interesting because I, I, I guess... Um, my my answer to that question almost sounded quite negative in terms of risk being at the forefront but i think you're absolutely right there but um that 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 risk and and the focus on security and and how a prison as an establishment runs effectively and and to keep people safe actually those boundaries are really really important and um and, and because it does, it does keep people safe. And, and, and yes, like you say, Naomi, the, the, the ultimate aim is to reduce that person reoffending. So again, to kind of improve their well-being in that sense. Um, so yeah, the, the, those boundaries are in, incredibly important as well. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. Yeah. That's really funny, though, because um, because actually I was thinking more about the health side of things. That, there's ah. that, that the health staff aren't doing enough to to contribute towards risk reduction. When I actually think the well-being, focusing on the well-being, is very much about reducing reducing risk. And I, you know, I think you can look at it from both both sides. But I think for someone who's got you know a history of offending, we absolutely need to be giving attention to both of those. Um, both, yeah. both of those aspects, don't we? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um... Okay, so working in health and in prisons, did you find that the clients were different? How did you have to adapt your approach? Yeah, so... I... <sighs> Again, I'm actually not sure there's a great, <laughs> the 
there's a, a great deal of difference. Um, you know, I, I suppose somebody situated within health settings that the, the narrative of their their life and where they've got to that's been the predominant driving force that professionals have perceived as being what has I guess created the problems for them so there may be something there again it, it perhaps links back to what we were just saying but something there about um what what has been the focus for that individual what has brought that individual to professional services um focus and and if that is the offending behavior then then that's the the route that they go down if that's the if it's a health a particular health problem then that's the the pathway that they go down and 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 actually i'm i'm not sure that there there is particularly huge differences in terms of of those the individual clients um it may just be that the the need is is slightly different in relation to say for example something like mental health um and and actually I spe- I mean this taps into some of my interests sort of thinking about gender as well and and um and I'm going to talk in a very um binary uh way for a second here but um you know it, it it's something that I sort of talked to colleagues about and has been percolating in my head for for a few years around because of that what it is that brings somebody into contact with professionals is that why we see this difference between you know we do get more women situated in our mental health settings and we do get more men in our prison and probation service settings in our criminal justice settings and is that something about um what pathway it is that we put them on as professionals in terms of you know it's the it used to be described as the mad or bad thing wasn't it you know is, is it that we it's risk and we focus on that and that's the need so we shunt our our young boys our, our our young men down that pathway as opposed to a well it's a mental health need it's a um we need to understand how this has happened and why this person's in distress and, and down that mental health pathway um, and again I'm talking like I say very kind of crudely and, and generalized here but it, it does make me wonder if that's part of what we've been doing to target our resources with people um because actually when you know when we look at men in prison quite often have very very similar needs to for example young women i've worked with in a secure children's home you know the 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 path that they've got to where they are is is not dissimilar um and it almost feels like i wonder if we're missing a trick here in terms of not taking into account all those different needs and, and not being as holistic as we could be um, in working with people. I thought it was a really good point about how we as professionals might end up sending someone on a particular pathway because certainly it seems like people end up in prison quite often once you scratch beneath the surface they're very very similar groups having worked in both settings again myself yeah uh, except for it seems that people in prison are much less good at exposing their vulnerability and we did um, some evaluation of the uh, individuals mental health um, problems that c- came into the FENS unit and they were contrasted with um, patients in PEAKS unit at Rampton which was also serving a, a population labelled personality disordered and in fact uh, men who ended up in the FENS unit had had more hospital admissions and met more diagnostic criteria on the DSM system for diagnosing individuals' mental health than the patients mm. in Rampton did, which, you know, that shouldn't really be the case, but, yeah. you know, that was the case. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, that's fascinating, Naomi, and I'm, I'm, I'm almost not surprised to hear that, you know, that that's uh, very much... And, and one thing I think, you know, sort of hearing myself and hearing you say about that as well is that um, I think what's really important to say, thinking about that, is that, um quite often again the narrative around men is that therefore if we consider those things that we're then excusing the behavior um and and that's I think just important to tack on there that it's never for me ever been about excusing somebody's behavior um but it's always been about trying to understand why somebody has done the things they've done um in order to prevent that happening again um and 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 again i think we're maybe that's something we're quite good at 
in mental health settings, maybe we're not so good at that in prison. I don't know. And, and again, I'm talking broadly here because um, I'm sure individual people who work in those settings would say, no, that is what we do. And um, yeah, yeah. So again, it's just it's it's all these kind of thoughts that, that percolate and and are really interesting to consider when we think about okay, how are we approaching these individual people then and and what bearing does the setting have on that as well you know the, the the setting we are dictated to by those hierarchies within those settings by the 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 forces within those settings and, the, and therefore where the resources lie and um and, and it's quite tricky I think as practitioners to navigate that and um and, and work out where you fit in that I guess maybe morally as well and um and what sits comfortably with you what doesn't that it's it's they're, they're really difficult systems to work in yeah I, I was reading something recently which was describing how the biggest uh, provider of mental health services in the united states is um in american prisons um and i was i, I was wondering whether the same applied over here and I can't believe that it does, if only because our provision for mental health services in our prisons is so poor anyway. Um, but it may well mean that there's a large number of uh, individuals who are kind of warehoused without treatment, I suppose. Mm. Mm. Yes, yeah, quite possibly, yeah. So moving on slightly, um, you, you've also worked with uh, frontline workers such as paramedics what kind of work were you doing and what did this teach you about well-being so the, i've actually um the, the work with paramedics has been um, a piece of research that um i've been involved in recently with um a colleague of mine chris pritchard who's a paramedic lecturer and we had been thinking about um so by the nature of some of my research, which is linked to women who perpetrate intimate partner violence and as, a, as an aside to that, then men who are victims of intimate partner violence, we had sort of talked about whether we knew anything about um, how paramedics might um, identify male victims, how they might uh, manage to use a very health term, you know, how they might manage male victims when they're, um, face with them and and that's led us to to open up a piece of work trying to work out what we know about that so we're currently in the the depths of a systematic review trying to work out what the literature um, tells us about how paramedics identify and manage male victims of intimate partner violence um, and spoiler alert there there is nothing out there that we can find there's sort of the odd nod to um to encouraging uh, paramedics to consider men as victims but, but very very little so there's a, a a really big piece of work there to be done thinking about how primary uh healthcare professionals frontline healthcare professionals might um work with that population um and and we know that you know we, we've sort of alluded to it already we know that men again generally tend to find it difficult to come forward and maybe express vulnerabilities or express victimization of something so um you know i think we need to be in a position where we're maybe thinking about how we do that work with the primary healthcare professionals for them to start to to be on the lookout for it and we're still a long way away from that in terms of thinking about women as victims of, of domestic violence as well we're still in the process of trying to get um healthcare professionals to to think about that at the forefront of their mind um let alone then think about how do we do that with men as well um i'm, I'm not sure if i've gone off on a bit of a tangent there david sorry from that question <laughs> um but yeah that's the a recent bit of work that we've been involved in so the work really if i understand you correctly is uh, to do with developing the awareness and the perception of, of of this particular group of, of workers yeah 
that's right yeah 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 how do how do we do that how do we best do that and um and develop like you say develop the awareness um make that something that people think about when they might be you know a a paramedic for example might be the first person to encounter an incident that's happened how do we make them aware of this as a possibility and therefore um be in a position where we could maybe offer support or, or start to to direct people off to to the support they need that's uh, such important work i think yeah absolutely um, yes yeah how do you think your clinical practice shaped your approach to uh, research so i think what it's what it's mostly done is enabled me i think it's it has put me in a fortunate position of being able to think about well, things like culture, like we've been talking about the culture and and ethos and language of organisations, but also then thinking about, okay, well, what is the purpose of this academic research then that's done behind a desk in an office somewhere? How can I make that as applied as possible? How can I do research that um, will be impactful or, or has the potential to be impactful? um you know on people's practice with the with you know the idea being with the potential of then helping people reducing their victimization or um reducing um negative behaviors improving people's quality of life that i think that's that's ultimately where my focus is when i think about research and um i'm really keen to then apply that you know what does that mean for the clinician on the front line what might it mean for them and I don't have all those answers and and the the world changes all the time but I like to think that that helps me to work out where the impact lies and 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 how I might be able to be a very small part of of that change at some point thank you Amy Jenny, how does an academic department get the best out of the different backgrounds of the staff in their team? So presumably not everybody's got an applied background um, in a research team. How do you make make sure that the department gets the best out of the strengths out of all, all team members? I mean, it, yeah, it's it's tricky. It's hard. It's it's, it's another um, great question. But it's, it is really difficult to do that because there is something there about how do you um, how how do you make everybody feel valued in the contribution that they bring. Where it is quite easy to work in a siloed way. I think in academia, it is quite easy to um, <clears throat> excuse me to. Um, to focus on your piece of work and, and your next task and, and, and work in that way. So, um, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not sure I, I know exactly what the answers to that to that are, but it's certainly about that how we value people, how we value contributions, how we celebrate their contributions as well, so that people, maybe new staff coming through, feel... Um, enabled to undertake that work and to be part of projects that maybe they might not consider themselves ordinarily that that's something that I know it's not something I might get involved in um we do have quite at Nottingham Trent in particular we do have quite a good mix I think of practitioners people you know with practitioner backgrounds or who work currently in practice and then people who come from that um traditional academic background we're a huge department um i i think we're we're either the or one of the biggest um intakes of psychology undergraduates so it's really difficult to do that it's very difficult to um make sure you to to do all that valuing of everybody and to make sure that people have their voice in that and I'm, i'm sure we don't always get that right but i think it is very much about having the support systems in place to enable people to take part in projects where they can to um to see themselves being able to be part of something that maybe um doesn't immediately flag up to them as as something that they could be involved in and is there any advice that you could offer to somebody who's coming from more of a practice background into academia in terms of how to make that transition um, in a in a smooth way 
Yeah, and it, it is a it is a difficult transition. Um, I, you know, I, I it, it was I have to say having completed the PhD for me first before coming into a lecturing position, I think helped hugely because it felt like a kind of gentle intro into academia. I think it's really hard for our practitioners who you know switch from maybe you know working in the NHS that has got its as we've said its its culture its ethos its language um to then come into the, the world of academia um and I think my my biggest tip I guess and, and what I, I try to say to people is to really use that clinical experience to your advantage so you know use your you know, as a, as a clinical psychologist coming in or a counselling psychologist, you're inevitably very, um, you want to, you, you're very inquiring, you're very, you want to know about people, you want to understand people. That's what I would say to people is to kind of really use that to really understand what, how an academic department works, how the systems work. Um, you know, asking people about their business, asking them about their roles, who fits where here, how does this work and um, what are the mechanisms at play? Because I think having that broad understanding of um, of, of academia and, and how it runs in that, that, you know, that we've got that clear yearly rotation from September through to, to August of, of that academic year and um, allowing yourself time to get to grips with that that year and what that feels like, where the peaks and troughs are, where the busy times are, but where there might be times when you can sit back a little bit and reflect and think about your practice and how that fits in um, and, and asking all the insightful questions that we know that practitioners do. You know, we... <laughs> um, we're quite nosy I think aren't we when we come from a practice background we like to get under people's skin and work out what's happening and that's I think the thing for people to take advantage of yeah I think you're certainly right there Jenny <laughs> so you're, you're you're very passionate about making sure forensic psychologists have a thorough understanding of mental health why why is this so important and do you think everyone who's training as a forensic psychologist should should have some understanding of mental health problems yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I guess this links back into some of the things we've said about that crossover um, or the similarities between client groups that <clears throat> just because somebody might be situated in a specific establishment or, you know, physical location doesn't mean that they don't have the needs that somebody in a, a different type of establishment or, um, might have. And and I think that's the the that's the import of it I guess is, is it, the, it's about being needs driven and working out what that individual needs and and quite often we are talking about mental health needs there um, so I'm part of our um, forensic mental health master's course um, course team at NTU um, and um, it, it's it's been really important to us to think about okay what what are we sending our graduates out with them? What what skills is it that they need to work in this area, and um, and how does that link with forensic psychology, um, which might be more driven uh, by that those risk assessments? But those risk assessments also need to take into account need, and that need might well be mental health. Um, so yeah, I think it's I think it's it's really important for our forensic psychology. Uh, postgraduates to be considering you know all of those different areas and and, and, I, and again I, I know our um, our various uh, BPS accredited our British Psychological Society accredited courses across the country will be doing that work to try and um, ensure that graduates are, are, are have that understanding for sure. Thank you, Jenny. And what's the cost to clients with mental health problems of working with practitioners who don't have this kind of training or experience? Because that's ultimately where the impact is, surely. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I guess it comes back to that, um, how we're improving people's quality of life, I guess, you know, as, as psychologists, that's you know maybe am I speaking for everyone by saying this but that, that's perhaps our ultimate goal is about how do we ensure that people flourish in the best way they can and and live mentally emotionally psychologically healthy lives as best they can given the context that they're in 
um, and and I, I suppose the 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 risk if we if we're not considering if if we are just focused on risk risk assessment and we don't consider those other individual needs and, and mental health needs. Um, then we might be missing that element of somebody's life, and and you know we we are complex, we're all complex humans with a you know a multitude of, of needs and faces and, um, and and elements to our lives, and if we miss a chunk of that, we have got we do run the risk there of I guess not um, not helping people in the best way that we can. I think. Um, and, and not improving their quality of life. And when we talk about offending work, then potentially not reducing the risk that they'll reoffend and therefore potentially creating more victims or um, or, or being part of, of, of that problem, I suppose. Thank you. So what are some of the similarities and indeed some of the differences that you notice between male and female perpetrators of, of violent crimes? Big question. Big question, yeah, yeah. And controversial. <laughs> it's a, it's a, this is, in, in here is where the controversy lies with this topic, I think. Um, so in my, in the work I've done, um, and, and in, you know, the, the years of, of practice of working with a mix of, of men and women, um, girls and boys. Again, I'm talking in a very, where I'm talking in a very binary way at this point. Um, but I think we're, I, I believe that we're more similar than different. Um, certainly when we look at the life histories, so the, the work I did on my picture, the life histories of people who've perpetrated violence within relationships, there are, many more similarities than differences. Um, <clears throat> I found that um, the, the kind of themes that the participants I, um, who, who very kindly took part in my research, the kind of <clears throat> themes that were present for both women and men were about the chaos and the, the trauma experiences of their early lives and their adolescence. Um, very unstable, chaotic, um, you know, really unsteady lives that, that these women and men faced and were exposed to with high levels of abuse, um, physical, sexual, um, you name it, they'd, they'd gone through it. Um, and, and there was very little that really separated out the women and men. Um, but, but where those differences lie, they're potentially really important, actually. Um, and the the differences seem to be linked to, so for, for women, uh, a real sense of isolation. And again, this may be something about the pathways that we we society expect women and men to go down. When men started engaging in criminal behaviour from an early age, they actually found... Um, little pockets of other young men who were doing that and they kind of had their um they had a place where they fit where that was part of their lives and it was quite normal and there's there's issues with that and I don't say that in a positive way whereas for women um very isolated from peers at school uh teachers seem to treat them differently um, they've already got problems at home so there's a real sense of growing up and feeling quite different to the people around them um, and that fed into their pathway to perpetrating violence in in uh, intimate relationships as they grew older. The the other sort of slight difference, and and um, this is something we we tend to see in the literature a bit more broadly as well, is that women did tend to talk about more mental health problems more readily than the men did. So they would um, maybe allude to having have a diagnosis of maybe something like a personality disorder or um, PTSD, depression and anxiety, those kind of diagnoses. Um, now, men described very similar types of experiences, but with no formal labels or diagnoses on it. Um, and again, that, that normalisation to them might have acted as a little bit of a protective factor in a way in terms of mental health. That sounds a bit 
bizarre. Um, but when something was so normalised, them it, it didn't feel different and they didn't feel odd and they were just, I guess, able to carry on with their lives, even as self-destructive as that might have been at times. Whereas the women tended to talk about knowing something wasn't right and knowing something sat uncomfortably with them and that they needed help. So that seemed to be, in terms of my specific piece of research, the the big differences. But like I say, there are more similarities and and certainly in the the, the practice, practice work I've done in the past has demonstrated that to me as well in terms of the type of experiences that, that, that young men and women have been through. Um, and it suggests to me that what we therefore might need to do in terms of how we um, offer interventions or programmes of work with people is that we perhaps need to be gender informed. So we need to be mindful of um, the different experiences that a, a woman might have been through compared to a man, but that that nece- doesn't necessarily need to drive the intervention or the work that is offered to them. Um, so we're really good, I think, at um, working in um, you know, the, the trauma, I'd say in, in inverted quotes, the trauma-informed way with women. Um, we're good at considering whether they've come from a trauma background and, and offering safe spaces and places to protect that element for them. But we're not as good in, I think, again, broad brush here, but we're not as good as that with men, whereas we might need to be. So we might need to think about how that normalisation of the traumatic experiences for them has impacted on them um, and be gender informed in that way. But actually, they might all need some kind of um, trauma focused work, for example. Does that does that make sense? Is that <laughs> quite a lengthy response there? But it's a big question. <laughs> yeah, no, I found that really fascinating. <laughs> I found that really fascinating about the you know, that sense of loneliness versus belonging, because certainly that really resonates from hearing men talk about, you know, as teenagers, kind of like having a a sense of bonding with antisocial Mm. peers, finding an alternative family to belong to when they weren't getting that from home or a father figure um, as they saw it, even if it was a really dysfunctional antisocial father figure. So really interesting to hear the the comparison with women's experiences. Yes. So, moving on slightly, but not very far, at the other side of, of that, do you think there are any uh, misconceptions or misperceptions about women who use violence? Yeah, I think there's quite a few, actually. Um, I think we're... So this is where, again, where we kind of sit maybe in, in the controversial area Um because actually, I, I think we're in a position, again, I say we society, where we might not always recognise women's use of violence. And there's something p- potentially here about it being um, maybe more, dare I say it, socially acceptable. Um, and we see this on, you know, uh, things in in social media quite regularly uh, so one example I, I can think of now there was a um a, a, a trend on tiktok which i'm far too old to engage in um but i'm told and i have seen <laughs> snippets of this on youtube um there was a trend on tiktok of um men young men who game um pretending to talk in their headphones to a a, a female Uh, other gamer whilst their girlfriend was in the room and they recorded set up their phone and recorded their girlfriend's reaction to this and there's quite a few uh, compilation clips online that you can see and um, a lot of those compilation clips involve the, the girlfriends reacting very violently actually to their boyfriends so hitting them um demanding to know what's happening ripping the headphones off their head etc etc and um i'd just ask if the if the gender roles were reversed there there would be utter outrage at this that that men would the young men would be perceived as controlling as coercive um as jealous as um physically abusive you know the girlfriends perhaps told to get out of those relationships but this becomes something that's a bit of a sport to put online and that it's funny and comical and um 
and um, and like I say, maybe dare I say it more socially acceptable that we don't recognise that as problematic, um, which I would wholeheartedly argue it is problematic. Um, and and so that's one of the first things I think in terms of why the the perception of that or what, what maybe the myth about women's use of violence is is that there's something we're not recognising there. Um, there's also some indication from research that maybe women engage in more psychological violence that, or emotional violence or abuse than men do. Um, you know, we, we get this from when we ask kind of big um, act-based uh, surveys. So we just ask people about their behaviours they, they use or that they have been exposed to. Um, and so again, there's something there about the recognition of that. That's quite harder for other people to spot. Probably it's quite harder for people to, um, accept has happened to them. It's quite hard to then report that. So we're potentially missing something there around identifying, um, women as using violent or abusive behaviors. Um, and, and like I say, there's sort of this almost a, a comedy attached to it when, when women use violence, um, particularly even in, in relationships, that's something that is often portrayed on, on TV as, as perhaps com- comical. Um, it makes it quite difficult for people to step forward then, I guess, and say that that's something that they've been exposed to. Um, and then there's, of course, we've got the, 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 the gender role and the gender stereotype of women being nurturing and loving and kind and, um, caring so then when we see perhaps in the media a woman who's broken that stereotype they're very much vilified which perhaps again links into this isolation that women who maybe do use violent type behaviors when they're growing up that isolation they feel because there's a vilification then of those women and um and then that's not me that I don't identify with that um so again there's something there about that the perception that we have of it um, that that makes it quite difficult to to spot and to see it as something that's problematic because if it's something that happens to women who are different to other women then it's not something that we might necessarily need to do anything about because it's rare and it you know and, and, and it's not important it's out there it's a mythical creature type thing whereas actually I again would would disagree with that um because we we know from men's accounts um, that when they are exposed to violence and abuse by women, that that is very impactful, actually. Um, And and again, there could be an argument here that more so impactful because it's not something that we can talk about. So where does a person go to discuss those um, experiences that they've had um, and and to be listened and, and, and heard and therefore their quality of life improved, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I guess what you're talking about really is a, a kind of spectrum um, of uh, acts of, 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 of violence. Um, because what you were describing with the boyfriend and the girlfriend sounds like some kind of sadomasochistic you know, engagement, which may well be a, a feature of of uh, some people's relationships as well. And I'm also reminded of old films where you would often see the little woman fly into a temper with her silly man and yes. run up to yes. him and punch him. And it was all very patronising and funny, really. Yes, yeah, and and actually, the, the word you use there, patronising, is is really interesting because actually, what it um, this is the other thing it taps into for me is a um, almost a, a sense of women being silly when they use violence or, or or when they get angry, and and that's then very infantilizing to women. I think you know we we um, as as a as a woman, I'm an agent of you know a, an independent agent of myself, and and if that's if if i choose to uh or if if i become angry that you know that's very valid <laughs> and, it, and it's something there about invalidating that then as well um invalidating those experiences of women so it's not just about doing a disservice here to maybe the victim of uh, uh, when women might use violence but also doing a disservice 
to women saying that that like you say it's kind of it's silly but it is it's very patronizing I think to think of it in that way yeah absolutely I think um I think if you stop talking about women as perpetrators rather than victims you're accused of being misogynistic and um being anti-feminist when in fact I you know 100% agree with that that actually when we don't take women's violence seriously we're effectively painting women into a into a very submissive role within society yes. where they're only able to be victims yes very much so very much so and I I that um it, it's something that really does it really does rile me because we as women are more than capable of doing that as well and being perpetrators and and, and it, again depending on the the maybe the pathways that we've been exposed to in our lives shapes then whether whether we use violence or abuse as well and um we we must acknowledge that we we really must do great over to you naomi so are there in terms of treatment are we are there differences in terms of how what kind of treatment women need when we treat their offending and are we getting it right with with the treatment of men who offend yeah i mean so this is again is a is another it's a really tricky one um it, it, it's quite it's, it's it's a couple of things here that's, that's kind of difficult to unpick about it um one of the issues being just to, to take it back a little bit again is is the identification of the need so we are in a position where we went and I'm going to use the example of women and men coming into prison we've obviously got a lot less women in our prison system than the men but when men come into prison one of the almost a screening question is is this person a dv perpetrator and there's a easy tick box on the system and you can run a quick report to say who's been identified as a, a dv domestic violence perpetrator um we don't do that for women so actually we don't know <laughs> how many have been identified again in our prison system um as being a dv perpetrator and, and i just add in here that i i don't like these labels i don't like that we might but for for ease of talking about it it, it does unfortunately make it a little bit easier um so we so one thing is that we we actually don't know where this need sits at the minute we don't we're not quite sure how many women this actually refers to um but we might be able to do that for men that's kind of one thing the second thing is that we do offer quite different interventions again again i'm thinking exclusively here about our criminal justice system here in um england and wales um we do offer offense focused work for men in prison and probation so we have programs that are designed to target specific offending needs for example sexual offending or intimate partner violence offending um we don't have that for women not not in a not in the same um the, the same way that we have for men psychologists and other professionals will probably do targeted focus work with women where it's identified and needed but like I say, we've firstly got a problem with identification. But secondly, there aren't e- readily, easily available programs um, that we might off- be able to offer to women. So we don't know if there's a need. <laughs> and also, if there is a need there, we're not tackling it, I don't think. However, having said that, what we do do with women in our criminal justice system is um, work in a trauma-informed victim-focused way and actually that's I think that's probably where the focus should be and maybe that's something we should be doing for men um you know across the board as far as I'm concerned um we have a female offender strategy that's very much focused on um being trauma-informed working in that way um, having staff around who understand the impact of being victimised, the impact of trauma, but we haven't got that in our um, in our work with with men in the criminal justice system. So, um, so actually, even though we don't have the targeted in- interventions with women, the the culture of how we work with women in the system is pretty good, um, or it should be in theory. Um, and and I actually think we we ought to be shifting towards having that 
thought with with the the chaps that we work with as well it's probably worth saying um just for listeners that that so there obviously is a male version of working with offenders uh, with personality disorders in prison which is trauma informed but that's obviously a tiny proportion of men who are in prison that get access to that so i think on the um the the offending offenders with personality disorder pathway i think they do get more of a formulation driven more of a trauma focused approach generally but yeah as i say that's that's a tiny amount of the men that are actually in prison and many more are receiving offending behavior programs where that won't be part of their experience at all yeah yeah thanks Naomi that's that's it's important to acknowledge that absolutely so finally Jenny we're coming to the end of time really but we we always like to ask people at the end you've you know you've spent many years working with people who've committed quite brutal offenses who often have very traumatic histories themselves what strategies have you used to protect your own well-being and mental health and how would you advise less experienced psychologists to look after their own emotional well-being really crucial yes yeah um it's so important to take care of yourself and I think there's been times where I have not been able to do that and maybe that's part of why I've moved around quite a bit in terms of my career because there has been times when I've just not been able to do that self-protection and therefore do the job I was doing the justice it needs um it's for me it's always about having good supervision so um colleagues peers and um and managers around you who understand um you know really understand the nature of this kind of work and who can offer you a space to discuss that and to to talk about it in a non-judgmental way um so that does therefore mean the, the you know the infrastructure within departments and within within um, establishments or or the the place you work does need to be there in order to give that. If that's not there for people, then I would wholeheartedly encourage people to um, set up their own systems of being able to do that. You know, um, buddy up with people that you can talk about this work in a confidential uh, but non judgmental way, um, so that you can do that debriefing and that offloading. And I think one thing we're really good at as psychologists actually is is reflection um, and um, and 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 this is something that I think you know we we, we could do with offering across various services, not just with psychologists, but but um, all of those other hardworking people who work on the front line with vulnerable people what does good reflection look like and how do we do that well how do we grow that as a skill for people um so being able to reflect back um objectively and subjectively to kind of say okay where can i what can i learn from this situation how can i grow from this how can my practice develop um what did i do well what can i improve you know all of those kind of good um reflections and then what's what do I want to change then going forward where, where what's my pathway now how do I develop from this do I have a, do I have a training need it's it's reflection and supervision I think is so key to protecting yourself from being in a place where you can respond to vulnerable individuals or you know individuals who are faced with vulnerabilities in, in, a, in a way that's positive for everybody um and having good friends around you as well. That's very, very important. Being a good friends, good family support, um, and, and seeking that out where where you can and, and using people for the 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 right things. It's okay to talk about this with some friends again in a confidential way. Um, but there might be other groups of friends that you that you know you know you're not gonna get that support from them, they maybe don't understand. It's kind of picking and choosing the people around you that can offer the support you need in a certain moment, I think. Thank you. And I really liked you. I liked um, your comment at the start, actually, about maybe that's com- maybe that's been some of the reason behind changing areas at times that actually sometimes I think we, you know, perhaps we've had the learning from a situation and it, and it might feel um, arduous to continue in that area. And actually, sometimes the change is as good as a rest, isn't it, to go and work in a different different area and have different experiences might might yeah. make it it's um, more manageable 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and and I think I suppose the other thing I just encourage people to is to not see those times as failures, because that's, that's often been the case for me is that I felt I failed when I've maybe moved on from somewhere that I felt I couldn't hack, for want of a better phrase. But actually, that's all been about growth and development and acknowledging your strengths, acknowledging where you work best and, and where where you don't. And that's OK. That's perfectly fine. And you seem a very positive person, Jenny. And I think we've, you know, we've all probably seen people that stay in the same job for a very long time and think perhaps, perhaps they should have left earlier. Yes, <laughs> yeah, sadly, and um, I think, yeah, you know, I, I, I like to think I'm a positive person, and maybe that's been part of it is just being able to do some of that development and growth, and being able to acknowledge my own my own downfalls at times and, and move on from that. Yeah. Thank you very much, Jenny. Sorry, David. Great. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Jenny. A real pleasure to uh, meet with you. Thank you for having me. It's been fantastic.